Your listenership is so important to us, and we hope you're enjoying the show. If you are able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So does following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your time and support. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and I'm so glad you chose to join me tonight. This evening we'll be returning to Jane Eyre, but before we do that, let's take some time to settle in. Get cosy in bed. Sink deep into your mattress. Relieve yourself of any pressure to fall asleep. Next, take the deepest breath you have taken all day. Just when you're ready to exhale, breathe in a tiny bit more. Now let it all go. Do this two or three more times, and with each exhale, let your mind become lighter and focus on my voice. To recap on our last episode, Jane and Mr. Rochester were discussing the abandoned marriage and his moral attachment to his actual wife. He explained in detail the whole story of how he had come to marry Bertha Mason and begged Jane to stay by his side. He was helpless and devastated that he was to lose Jane forever and be doomed to remain by the mad woman's side for the sake of legality. He spoke of how he felt tricked by Bertha's family, that they knew she was mentally unstable because her mother was also in an asylum. He had been able to keep their marriage secret from English society as his father and brother had never announced the wedding. It had been Bertha who had set his bed alight after managing to sneak by Grace Poole's watch. She had stabbed her brother with a secreted knife when he had come to visit her. She also, Jane realized, must have come to her room the evening before and torn her wedding veil in two. Mr. Rochester had decided long ago that in order to be happy, he must be determined to find new love and remarry someone he could spend his life with. And so we pick back up tonight, Jane listening to Mr. Rochester as he continues to explain his situation. So just relax and close your eyes as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre.
Chapter 27 continued. Well, sir, I asked. When you are inquisitive, Jane, you always make me smile, Mr. Rochester replied. You open your eyes like an eager bird and make every now and then a restless movement, as if answers in speech did not flow fast enough for you and you wanted to read the tablet of one's heart. But before I go on, tell me what you mean by your well, sir. It is a small phrase, very frequent with you, and which many a time has drawn me on and on through interminable talk. I don't very well know why. I mean, what next? How did you proceed? What came of such an event? I asked. Precisely, he replied. And what do you wish to know now? Whether you found anyone you liked? Whether you asked her to marry you? And what she said? I can tell you whether I found anyone I liked and whether I asked her to marry me. What she said is yet to be recorded in the book of fate. For ten long years I roved about, first living in one capital, then another. Sometimes in St. Petersburg, oftener in Paris, occasionally in Rome, Naples and Florence. Provided with plenty of money and the passport of an old name, I could choose my own society. No circles were closed against me. I sought my ideal of a woman amongst English ladies, French and German countesses, and Italian signoras. I could not find her. Sometimes for a fleeting moment I thought I caught a glance, heard a tone, beheld a form which announced the realization of my dream, but I was presently undeceived. You are not to suppose that I desired perfection, either of mind or person. I longed only for what suited me, for the antipodes of my wife, and I longed vainly. Amongst them all, I found not one whom I had been ever so free. I warned as I was of the risks, the horrors, the loathings of incongruous unions would have asked to marry me. Disappointment made me reckless. I tried dissipation, never debauchery. That I hated and hate. Any enjoyment that bordered on riot seemed to approach me to her and her vices, and I eschewed it. Yet I could not live alone, so I tried the companionship of mistresses. The first I chose was Celine Varennes, another of those steps which make a man spurn himself when he recoils them. You already know what she was and how my liaison with her terminated. She had two successors, an Italian, Giacinta, and a German, Clara, both considered singularly handsome. 
what was their beauty to me in a few weeks. Giacinta was unprincipled and violent. I tired of her in three months. Clara was honest and quiet but heavy, mindless and unimpressible. Not one whit to my taste. I was glad to give her a sufficient sum to set her up in a good line of business and to so get decently rid of her. But Jane, I see by your face you are not forming a very favorable opinion of me just now. You think me an unfeeling, loose-principled rake, don't you? I don't like you so well as I have done sometimes, indeed, sir. Did it not seem to you in the least wrong to live that way, first with one mistress and then another? You talk of it as mere matter of course. It was with me, and I did not like it. It was a groveling fashion of existence. I should never like to return to it. I now hate the recollection of the time I passed with Celine, Giacinta, and Clara. I felt the truth of these words, and I drew from them the certain inference that if I were so far to forget myself and all the teaching that had ever been instilled into me, as under any pretext, with any justification, through any temptation, to become the successor of those poor girls, he would one day regard me with the same feeling which now in his mind desecrated their memory. I did not give utterance to this conviction. It was enough to feel it. I impressed it on my heart that it might remain there to serve me as an aid in the time of trial. Now, Jane, why don't you say well, sir? Mr. Rochester continued. I have not done. You are looking grave. You disapprove of me still, I see. But let me come to the point. Last January, rid of all mistresses in harsh, bitter frame of mind, the result of a useless, roving, lonely life, corroded with disappointment, sourly disposed against all men and especially against all womankind, I begin to regard the notion of an intellectual, faithful, loving woman as a mere dream. Recalled by business, I came back to England. On a frosty winter afternoon, I rode in sight of Thornfield Hall, aboard the spot. I expected no peace, no pleasure there. On a style, in Hay Lane, I saw a quiet little figure sitting by itself. I passed it as negligently as I did the pollard willow opposite to it. I had no presentiment of what it would be to me, no inward warning that the arbitress of my life, my genius for good or evil, waited there in humble guise. I did not know it even when, on the occasion of Mesrour's accident, 
came up and gravely offered me help. Childish and slender creature. Seemed as if a linnet had hopped on my foot and proposed to bear me on its tiny wing. I was surly, but the thing would not go. It stood by me with strange perseverance and looked and spoke with a sort of authority. I must be aided by that hand, and aided I was. When once I had pressed the frail shoulder, something new, a fresh sap and sense stole into my frame. It was well I had learned that this elf must return to me, that it belonged to my house down below, or I could not have felt it pass away from under my hand and seen it vanish behind the dim hedge without singular regret. I heard you come home that night, Jane, though probably you were not aware that I thought of you, nor watched for you. The next day, I observed you, myself unseen, for half an hour while you played with Adele in the gallery. It was a snowy day. I recollect, and you could not go out of doors, I was in my room. The door was ajar. I could both listen and watch. Adele claimed your outward attention for a while, but I fancied your thoughts were elsewhere. But you were very patient with her, my little Jane. You talked to her and amused her a long time. When at last she left you, you lapsed at once into a deep reverie. You betook yourself slowly to pace the gallery. Now and then, in passing a casement, you glanced out at the thick, falling snow. You listened to the sobbing wind, and again you paced gently on and dreamed. I think those day visions were not dark. There was a pleasurable illumination in your eye occasionally a soft excitement in your aspect, which told of no bitter, bilious, hypochondriac brooding. Your look revealed rather the sweet musings of youth when its spirit follows on willing wings the flight of hope up and on to an ideal heaven. The voice of Mrs. Fairfax Speaking to a servant in the hall wakened you, and how curiously you smiled, to and at yourself, Janet. There was much sense in your smile. It was very shrewd, and seemed to make light of your own abstraction. It seemed to say, my fine visions are all very well, but I must not forget that they are absolutely unreal. I have a rosy sky and green flowery Eden in my brain, but without, I'm perfectly aware, lies at my feet a rough tract to travel, and around me gather black tempests to encounter. You ran downstairs and demanded of Mrs. Fairfax some occupation, the weekly house accounts to make up or Something of that sort, I think it was. 
I was vexed with you for getting out of my sight. Impatiently, I waited for evening when I might summon you to my presence, an unusual to me, perfectly new character I suspected was yours. I desired to search it deeper and know it better. You entered the room with a look and air at once shy and independent. You were quaintly dressed, much as you are now. I made you talk. Ere long I found you full of strange contrasts. Your garb and manner were restricted by rule. Your air was often diffident and altogether that of one refined by nature absolutely unused to society, and a good deal afraid of making herself disadvantageously conspicuous by some solecism or blunder. Yet when addressed, you lifted a keen, a daring, and a glowing eye to your interlocutor's face. There was penetration and power in each glance you gave. When plied by close questions, you found ready and round answers. Very soon you seemed to get used to me. I believe you felt the existence of sympathy between you and your grim and cross master, Jane, for it was astonishing to see how quickly a certain pleasant ease tranquilized your manner snarl as I would, you showed no surprise, fear, or annoyance, or displeasure at my moroseness. You watched me, now and then smiled at me with a simple yet sagacious grace I cannot describe. I was at once content and stimulated with what I saw. I liked what I had seen, and wished to see more. Yet for a long time I treated you distantly, and sought your company rarely. I was an intellectual epicure, and wished to prolong the gratification of making this novel and piquant acquaintance. Besides, I was for a while troubled with a haunting fear that if I handled the flower freely, its bloom would fade, the sweet charm of freshness would leave it. I did not know then that it was no transitory blossom, but rather the radiant resemblance of one cut in an indestructible gem. Moreover, I wished to see whether you would seek me if I shunned you, but you did not. You kept in the schoolroom as still as your own desk and easel. If by chance I met you, you passed me as soon, and with as little token of recognition as was consistent with respect. Your habitual expression in those days, Jane, was a thoughtful look, not despondent, for you were not sickly, but not buoyant, for you had little hope and no actual pleasure. I wondered what you thought of me, or if you ever thought of me, and resolved to find this out. 
I resumed my notice of you. There was something glad in your glance and genial in your manner when you conversed. I saw you had a social heart. It was the silent schoolroom. It was the tedium of your life that made you mournful. I permitted myself the delight of being kind to you. Kindness stirred emotion soon. Your face became soft in expression, your tones gentle. I liked my name pronounced by your lips in grateful, happy accents. I used to enjoy a chance meeting with you, Jane, at this time. There was a curious hesitation in your manner. You glanced at me with a slight trouble, a hovering doubt. You did not know what my caprice might be, whether I was going to play the master and be stern, or the friend and be benignant. I was now too fond of you often to stimulate the first whim, and when I stretched my hand out cordially, such bloom and light and bliss rose to your young, wistful features. I had much ado often to avoid straining you then and there to my heart. Don't talk any more of those days, sir, I interrupted, furtively dashing away some tears from my eyes. His language was torture to me, for I knew what I must do, and do soon, and all these reminiscences and these revelations of his feelings only made my work more difficult. No, Jane, he returned. What necessity is there to dwell on the past when the present is so much surer, the future so much brighter? I shuddered to hear the infatuated assertion you see now how the case stands, do you not? He continued. After a youth and manhood passed half in unutterable misery and half in dreary solitude, I have for the first time found what I can truly love. I found you. You are my sympathy, my better self, my good angel. I am bound to you with a strong attachment. I think you good, gifted, lovely. A fervent, a solemn passion is conceived in my heart. It leans to you, draws you to my center and spring of life, wraps my existence about you and kindling in pure, powerful flame fuses you and me in one. It was because I felt and knew this that I resolved to marry you. Tell me that I already had a wife is empty mockery. You know now that I had but a hideous demon. I was wrong to attempt to deceive you, that I feared a stubbornness that exists in your character. I feared early instilled prejudice. I wanted to have you safe before hazarding confidences. This was cowardly. It should have appealed to your nobleness, 
and magnanimity at first, as I do now, open to you plainly my life of agony, described to you my hunger and thirst after a higher and worthier existence, shown to you not my resolution, that word is weak, but my resistless bent to love faithfully and well, where I am faithfully and well loved in return. Then I should have asked you to accept my pledge of fidelity and to give me yours, Jane. Give it to me now. A pause. Why are you silent, Jane? I was experiencing an ordeal. A hand of fiery iron grasped my vitals. Terrible moment, full of struggle, blackness, burning. Not a human being that ever lived could wish to be loved better than I was loved. And him who thus loved me, I absolutely worshipped. I must renounce love and idol. One drear word comprised my intolerable duty. Depart. Jane, you understand what I want of you. Just this promise. I will be yours, Mr. Rochester. Mr. Rochester, I will not be yours. Another long silence. Jane, recommenced he with a gentleness that broke me down with grief and turned me stone cold with ominous terror. For this still voice was the pant of a lion rising. Jane, do you mean to go one way in the world and to let me go another? I do. Jane, bending towards and embracing me. Do you mean it now? I do. And now, softly kissing my forehead and cheek, I do. Extricating myself from restraint rapidly and completely. Watching. This is bitter. This, this is wicked would not be wicked to love me. It would to obey you. A wild look raised his brows, crossed his features. He rose, but he forbore yet. I laid my hand on the back of a chair for support. I shook. I feared, but I resolved. One instant, Jane. Give one glance to my horrible life when you are gone. All happiness will be torn away with you. What then is left? For a wife I have, but the woman upstairs. As well might you refer me to some corpse in yonder churchyard. What shall I do, Jane? Where turn for a companion and for some hope? Do as I do. Trust in God and yourself. Believe in heaven. Hope to meet there again. Then you will not yield. 
he asked. No, I replied. Then you condemn me to live wretched and to die accursed. His voice rose. I advise you to live sinless and wish you to die tranquil. Then you snatch love and innocence from me. You fling me back on lust for a passion, vice for an occupation. Mr. Rochester, I no more assign this fate to you than I grasp at it for myself. We were born to strive and endure, you as well as I. Do so. You will forget me before I forget you. You make me a liar by such language. You sully my honor. I declared I could not change. You tell me to my face I shall change soon. And what a distortion in your judgment. What a perversity in your ideas is proved by your conduct. Is it better to drive a fellow creature to despair than to transgress a mere human law, no man being injured by the breach? For you have neither relatives nor acquaintances whom you need to fear to offend by living with me. This was true, and while he spoke, my very conscience and reason turned traitors against me and charged me with crime in resisting him. They spoke almost as loud as feeling, and that clamoured wildly. Oh, comply, it said. Think of his misery. Think of his danger. Look at his state when left alone. Remember his headlong nature. Consider the reckless following on despair. Soothe him. Save him. Love him. Tell him you love him and will be his. Who in the world cares for you? Or who will be injured by what you do? Still, indomitable was the reply. I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. I will keep the law given by God, sanctioned by man. I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor. Stringent are they, inviolate they shall be. If at my individual convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? They have a worth, so I have always believed. And if I cannot believe it now, it is because I am insane, quite insane, with my veins running fire and my heart beating faster than I can count its throbs. 
preconceived opinions, foregone determinations are all I have at this hour to stand by. Therefore, I plant my foot. I did. Mr. Rochester, reading my countenance, saw I had done so. His fury was wrought to the highest. He must yield to it for a moment, whatever followed. He crossed the floor and seized my arm and grasped my wrist. He seemed to devour me with his flaming glance. Physically, I felt at the moment powerless as stubble exposed to the draught and glow of a furnace. Mentally, I still possessed my soul, and with it, the certainty of ultimate safety. The soul, fortunately, has an interpreter, often an unconscious, but still a truthful interpreter, in the eye. My eye rose to his, and while I looked in his fierce face, I gave an involuntary sigh. My overtaxed strength was almost exhausted. Never, he said as he ground his teeth. Never was anything at once so frail and so indomitable. A mere reed she feels in my hand. I could bend her with my finger and thumb. What good would it do if I bent, if I up-tore, if I crushed her? Consider that eye. Consider the resolute, wild, free thing looking out of it, defying me with more than courage, with a stern triumph. Whatever I do with its cage, I cannot get at it. The raw, beautiful creature. If I tear, if I rend the slight prison, my outrage will only let the captive loose. Conqueror I might be of the house, but the inmate would escape to heaven before I could call myself possessor of its clay dwelling place. And it is you, spirit, with will and energy and virtue and purity as I want. Not alone your brittle frame. Of yourself you could come with soft flight and nestle against my heart if you would. Seized against your will, you will elude the grasp like an essence. You will vanish ere I inhale your fragrance. Oh, come, Jane, come. As he said this, he released me from his clutch and looked at me. The look was far worse to resist than the frantic strain. Only an idiot, however, would have succumbed now. I had dared and baffled his fury. I must elude his sorrow. I retired to the door. You are going, Jane. I am going, sir. You are leaving me? Yes. You will not come. You will not be my comforter, my rescuer, 
my deep love, my wild woe, my frantic prayer are all nothing to you. What intolerable pathos was in his voice. How hard it was to reiterate firmly, I am going. Jane. Mr. Rochester. Withdraw then. The consent. But remember, you leave me here in anguish. Go up to your own room. Think over all I have said, and Jane, cast a glance on my sufferings. Think of me. He turned away. He threw himself on his face on the sofa. Oh, Jane, my hope, my love, my life, broke in anguish from his lips. Then came a deep, strong sob. I had already gained the door, but reader, I walked back, walked back as determinedly as I had retreated. I knelt down by him. I turned his face from the cushion to me. I kissed his cheek. I smoothed his hair with my hand. God bless you, my dear master, I said. God keep you from harm and wrong, direct you, solace you, reward you well for your past kindness to me. Little Jane's love would have been my best reward, he answered. Without it, my heart is broken, but Jane will give me her love. Yes, nobly, generously. Up the blood rushed to his face. Forth flashed the fire from his eyes. To his feet he sprang. He held his arms out, but I evaded the embrace and at once quitted the room. Farewell was the cry of my heart as I left him. Despair added, farewell forever. That night I never thought to sleep, but a slumber fell on me as soon as I lay down in bed. I was transported in thought to scenes of childhood. I dreamt I lay in the red room at Gateshead, that the night was dark and my mind impressed with strange fears. The light that long ago had struck me into Cinco, recalled in this vision, seemed glidingly to mount the wall and tremblingly to pause in the centre of the obscured ceiling. I lifted up my head to look, the roof resolved to clouds, high and dim. The gleam was such as the moon imparts to vapours she is about to sever. I watched her come, launched with the strangest anticipation, as though some word of doom were to be written on her disc. She broke forth as never moon yet burst from cloud. A hand first penetrated the sable folds 
and waved them away. Then, not a moon, but a white human form shone in the azure, inclining a glorious brow earthward. It gazed and gazed on me. It spoke to my spirit. Immeasurably distant was the tone, yet so near. It whispered in my heart, My daughter, flee temptation. Mother, I will. So I answered after I had waked from the trance-like dream. It was night yet, but July nights are short. Soon after midnight, dawn comes. It cannot be too early to commence the task I have to fulfill, thought I. I rose. I was dressed, for I had taken off nothing but my shoes. I knew where to find in my drawers some linen, a locket, a ring. In seeking these articles, I encountered the beads of a pearl necklace Mr. Rochester had forced me to accept a few days ago. I left that. It was not mine. It was the visionary brides who had melted in the air. The other articles I made up in a parcel. My purse, containing twenty shillings, it was all I had, I put in my pocket. I tied on my straw bonnet, pinned my shawl, took the parcel and my slippers, which I would not put on yet, and stole from my room. Farewell, kind Mrs. Fairfax. I whispered as I glided past her door. Farewell, my darling Adele, I said as I glanced towards the nursery. No thought could be admitted of entering to embrace her. I had to deceive a fine ear, for aught I knew it might now be listening. I would have got past Mr. Rochester's chamber without a pause, but my heart momentarily stopped its beat at that threshold. My foot was forced to stop also. No sleep was there. The inmate was walking restlessly from wall to wall. Again and again, he sighed while I listened. There was a heaven, a temporary heaven in this room for me, if I chose. I had to but go in and to say, Mr. Rochester, I will love you and live with you through life till death, and a fount of rapture would spring to my lips. I thought of this. That kind master, who could not sleep now, was waiting with impatience for day. He would send for me in the morning. I should be gone. He would have me sought for and vainly. He would feel himself forsaken, his love rejected. He would suffer, perhaps grow desperate. I thought of this too. My hand moved towards the lock. 
I caught it back and glided on. Drearily, I wound my way downstairs. I knew what I had to do and did it mechanically. I sought the key of the side door in the kitchen, sought too a file of oil and a feather. I oiled the key and the lock. I got some water. I got some bread. For perhaps I would have to walk far, and my strength, sorely shaken of late, must not break down. All this I did without one sound. I opened the door, passed through, shut it softly. Dim dawn glimmered in the yard. The great gates were closed and locked but a wicket in one of them was only latched. Through that I departed, it too I shut, and now I was out of Thornfield. A mile off, beyond the fields, lay a road which stretched in the contrary direction to Milcote, a road I had never travelled, but often noticed and wondered where it led. Thither, I bent my steps. No reflection was to be allowed now. Not one glance was to be cast back, not even one forward. Not one thought was to be given either to the past or the future. The first was a page so heavenly sweet, so deadly sad, to read one line of it would dissolve my courage and break down my energy. The last was an awful blank, something like the world when the deluge was gone by. I skirted fields and hedges and lanes till after sunrise. I believe it was a lovely summer morning. I know my shoes which I had put on when I left the house, was soon wet with dew, but I looked neither to rising sun, nor smiling sky, nor wakening nature. He who is taken out to pass through a fair scene to the scaffold thinks not of the flowers that smile on his road, but of the block and axe edge of the dissevement of bone and vein, of the grave gaping at the end, and I thought of drear flight and homeless wandering, and oh, with what agony I thought of what I left, I could not help it. I thought of him now in his room, watching the sunrise, hoping I should soon come to say I would stay with him and be his. I longed to be his. I panted to return. It was not too late. I could yet spare him the bitter pang of bereavement. As yet my flight, I was sure, was undiscovered. I could go back and be his comforter, his pride, his redeemer from misery, perhaps from ruin, or that fear of his self-abandonment, far worse than my abandonment, 
how it goaded me. It was a barbed arrowhead. It tore me when I tried to extract it. It sickened me when remembrance thrust it farther in. Birds began singing in break and corpse. Birds were faithful to their mates. Birds were emblems of love. What was I? In the midst of my pain of heart and frantic effort of principle, I abhorred myself. I had no solace from self-approbation, nor even from self-respect. I had injured, wounded, left my master. I was hateful in my own eyes. Still, I could not turn, not retrace one step. God must have led me on. As to my own will or conscience, impassioned grief had trampled one and stifled the other. I was weeping wildly as I walked along my solitary way. Fast, fast I went like one delirious. A weakness, beginning inwardly, extending to the limbs, seized me and I fell. I lay on the ground some minutes, pressing my face into the wet turf. I had some fear or hope that here I should die. But I was soon up, crawling forwards on my hands and knees, and then again raised to my feet, as eager and as determined as ever to reach the road. When I got there, I was forced to sit to rest me under the hedge, and while I sat, I heard wheels and saw a coach come on. I stood up and lifted my hand. It stopped, and I asked where it was going. The driver named a place a long way off, where I was sure Mr. Rochester had no connections. I asked for what sum he would take me there. He said thirty shillings. I answered I had but twenty. Well, he would try to make it do. He further gave me leave to get into the inside as the vehicle was empty. I entered, was shut in, and it rolled on its way. Gentle reader, may you never feel what I then felt. May your eyes never shed such stormy, scalding, heart-wrung tears as poured from mine. May you never appeal to heaven in prayers so hopeless and so agonized as in that hour left my lips. For never may you, like me, dread to be the instrument of evil to what you wholly love.